Well, if you're visiting with us, we are looking at the genealogy with which Matthew begins the story of Jesus. And if you think about a genealogy, it's a little bit like a family photo. The names in the genealogy represent the family into which a child is born. In some ways, it's meant to be a representation of the kind of person this, this one is. We send out family photos at this time of year to loved ones. Uh, and what we're saying is, this is my family. This is who I am. So it's very interesting to see unexpected figures listed in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. We find in this list women who at the time were gender outsiders, you could, you could say. They were not well respected as equals in this society. Foreigners, the, the ones who were kind of the them uh, versus the us. And sinners, people who do not belong, do not appear to be, belong in a list of those who are God's family. And yet, God, in this genealogy, seems to be saying, this is my family. These are my people. These are those with whom I choose proudly to identify myself. This is really wonderful. So today, we come to the third woman in the genealogy, a woman named Ruth. She's a woman, and that's unexpected. She's a foreigner. She's an immigrant. And uh, the question is, what do we learn from an immigrant about generosity? Turns out quite a lot, not just about Ruth's generosity, but most important about God's generosity and this gift of a savior. So let's open up our Bibles together. Uh, I wish we had time to read the whole book of Ruth together. It's not that long, but we don't have that time today. I just want to encourage you to read it. It's one of the most magnificent pieces of ancient literature. It's a short story, really. Um, it's a true story, uh, but let's look at two parts. I'm going to read for you, if you don't mind, from the ch first chapter, which is on uh, page 210 of the Pew Bible, and then I'll read from the last chapter so you get a little bit of how the story ends. When I'm done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen closely. You're hearing God's holy word. This is beginning with Ruth, chapter 1, uh, verses 8 through 17. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back each to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find security, each of you, in the house of your husband. Both, both husbands are dead. Then Naomi kissed them, and they wept aloud. They said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Do I still have sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. Even if I thought there was hope for me, even if I should have a husband tonight and bear sons, would you then wait until they were grown? Would you then refrain from remarrying? No. My daughters, it has been far more bitter for me than for you, because the hand of the Lord has turned against me. And then they wept aloud again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her. Naomi said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. 
Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not press me to leave you or to turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. There will I be buried. May the Lord do thus and so to me and more as well if even death parts me from you. And then let's turn the page to Ruth 4, uh, verses 13 through 15. So Boaz, uh, he's a Hebrew man, took Ruth and she became his wife. And when they came together, the Lord made her conceive and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without next of kin. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has borne him. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. You might keep the Bible open here and just reflect for a moment on where we ended. Verse 15, that last line. The story ends with the women of Bethlehem rejoicing. 1,000 years before the birth of Christ. And what they're saying about Ruth is that Ruth is to Naomi more than seven sons. Now think about that. That's remarkable in the context of a patriarchal culture. A woman, more than seven sons. You know, the number seven is the summer of completeness, fullness uh, in Hebrew. So, for example, to say that there were seven days, in seven days God made heaven and earth is to say essentially that uh, God made all things. The number seven is, is, in Hebrew is like our concept of infinity. So when Jesus says, forgive someone seven times 70, he's saying infinitely, keep forgiving. Forgiveness completely and without end. And therefore, to notice that Ruth is worth more than seven sons is to say she's worth infinitely more uh, than a man would be in a patriarchal society. And that's interesting because in a society in which your security, your financial welfare is tied, literally tied to the men in your life, father, husband, son, as a woman, to say that, no, this woman Ruth is more valuable than a husband. She's more valuable than a father. She's more valuable than a child. She's infinitely worth more than money. It's a remarkable thing. And the question is, why? What is it about Ruth? Well, I think it's her generosity. And we'll see that as we discuss this together. And I want to talk about three aspects of her generosity that reflect God's generosity. And they are this, sacrificial generosity. Secondly, wounded generosity. And thirdly, gospel generosity. So let's begin with sacrifice. Ruth points to a sacrificial generosity. It, it struck me as interesting that we consider the question of generosity through the eyes of one who would normally be a recipient of other people's generosity, an immigrant, a woman from Moab who has nothing of her own. And, and so think about 
God had commanded Israel to be generous to poor immigrants like uh, Ruth. And in fact, there's a whole system that's built into the economy of Israel to do just that. We, we find this in several places, but one is Leviticus chapter 19, verse 9, where God, through Moses, commands his people to be generous. And he says this, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. That's the stuff that falls. You shall not strip your vineyard bare or gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor. Those would be Israelites who don't have work or own land. And the alien. Those would be refugees and immigrants. And then he reinforces that. I am the Lord your God. In other words, this is not an option here. So interesting that God's building generosity into the practices, the economic practices of his people. Now, if we read a little bit further, we see this is not just charity. Deuteronomy 25, verse 20, I think it's 24, verse 20, says, it shall be, and here it's it, that, that fruit that's left behind, shall be for the alien, the orphan, and the widow. And if you read that carefully, you can see, particularly in the Hebrew, that what this means is these gleanings belong to the alien belong to the orphan and belong to the widow. In other words, God's saying this isn't so much optional or charity. This actually it, it belongs to them. There's part of your field that does not belong to you. It belongs to the alien in your midst. And they were allowed then to come onto the field and to do their own work to harvest from your field that which would benefit them. So the idea is that a, a farmer has to learn how to sacrifice not to take the full crop from his field, but to leave a remainder behind. Uh, don't pick up the stuff that's fallen. Don't take a second pass through the field. Don't harvest the corners or anything on the perimeter around. So there's this margin. It's not specified as to how broad it is, but you have to learn to live back from the border of all that you have. Old Testament scholar Christopher Wright would say that God's law asks us to find the means of ensuring that the weakest and poorest in the community are enabled to have access to the opportunities they need in order to provide for themselves. Opportunities may include financial resources, but could also include access to education, legal assistance, investment in job opportunities, etc. Such things should not be leftovers or handouts, but a matter of rights. See, God, God insists on a sacrificial community. And so I wonder, what does this mean for us? You know, I don't know many of us are farmers in this room, might have a garden, but understand, farming for them was their livelihood. And so it, it's their pay that's coming out of this field. Actually, it's also their portfolio because this is all their wealth is invested in, in these crops. And so what would it mean for me to pull back from the margin and create margin in my pay or margin in my portfolio and recognize that I may be holding this wealth, but it's not actually all for me? That God intends for part of what he has given me or entrusted to me to be used for the alien, for the immigrant. Surely for us, as for those ancient farmers, this would require us to live on less than we make to consume less than we cultivate. 
to create this margin between our income and our expenses. So if we're a business owner, not to try to squeeze every penny of productivity out of our business, but to make sure that our employees are well paid. Or if we're just an employee ourselves and we're working super hard, maybe we're an independent contractor, to, to make sure we don't work so hard that we don't have margin, time margin, in order to, to be generous with our family, be generous with our neighbors, be generous in the community where uh, people might benefit from our volunteer work. Or just with our money, um, to, to have economic margin. Most Americans are just the opposite. We tend to spend uh, beyond our means. This is saying spend less than your means, to voluntarily simplify, to take on a little bit more poverty in your life so that others can take on a little bit more wealth in theirs. To spend less, to give less. Could I buy this thing? Sure. But I'm not going to. Could I take this trip? Sure, but I'm not going to. Why not? Well, I, I really would like to be able to invest that wealth in the work of Jesus Christ as he's extending his kingdom and caring for the poor and making this a better, more just world. So Ruth points us to this sacrificial generosity. Secondly, Ruth points us to a wounded generosity. It, it's hard to be generous, let's be honest. I feel that, especially if my generosity is going to be sacrificial. But what's interesting here is that Ruth is not just the object of generosity, and she, she is the object of generosity. She, she benefits from this gleaning practice. She goes out into the field and she gathers barley at the harvest and brings it back to Naomi. It's not just that she's object of generosity. She's also the agent of generosity. And in fact, she ends up being more generous than anybody else in the story. She's a heroine of generosity. And we want to ask the question, how is it possible that a poor immigrant could be the most generous person in the story? It's an important question to ask because for me, the biggest barrier to my own generosity is the sense that I just can't afford to give or give any more than I have just can't afford to. Let's acknowledge that life is hard. And we feel like, gosh, I've worked hard for what I have. And I don't have a lot. And I can't afford not to, you know, to hold on to it. Uh, I'm, I'm feeling like I'm working hard. I'm, I may feel uh, overworked and maybe underpaid and just generally exhausted without the kind of margin that one would like to be generous. And then, of course, we have crises. We have financial crises, health crises, family crises. We're wounded in so many ways. And I might say to myself, well, when I get back up, my, up on my feet, I'll, then I'll be generous. But here's Ruth, who, even while she's knocked down, flat on her back, finds a way to be generous. I mean, she's got a lot of crisis in her life. Lost a husband, right? And, 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 and I would say it this way. She's giving out of her emptiness which actually is very inviting to me. I think we could all give out of our emptiness, our woundedness notwithstanding. If you look back at chapter 1, verse 21, you see that there's a, a motif that runs through this whole story around emptiness and fullness. The writer is tweaking the audience a little bit to say, who's really full and who's really empty? You might be surprised at this. Naomi says, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. And in the same way, you know, Ruth went away as a, this family went away as refugees, and Ruth is coming back as an immigrant in crisis, in grief, having nothing now, 
no family, no money, not even her, uh, the social structure and her religious identity. It's all been stripped away. She's profoundly empty, and yet here she is giving out of her emptiness. It makes me wonder, how could I give out of my emptiness? I found that the people who oftentimes give the most are those who have lost the most. They have enough life experience to know what it is like to be down. And therefore, when they see others who are, they just something inside of them that wants to respond. I think that actually suffering is intrinsic to generosity. Thornton Wilder writes, many who have spent a lifetime talking about love can tell us less of love than the child that lost a dog yesterday. What is he saying? He's saying out of that hurt, there comes a genuine empathy that allows us to love concretely. I did campus ministry for many years, and part of that was fundraising for the students of New England. And as I did that, people often I was pointing me towards the wealthy people. Go, go ask them to help. And many wealthy people were very generous in our ministry. But I oftentimes found, and I found this to be true to this day, that the people who are most generous are the people who have the least, because they know what it's like to be empty. And it's out of that emptiness then they give fullness uh, for others. The more Ruth gives out of her emptiness, the more she experiences God's fullness. And this is the beauty of this story. And I can't quite rationalize it for you. I don't know how it is the case. I know it's not prosperity gospel, but there is a reaping and a sowing in this story that's quite clear. She gives out of her emptiness. Her bag continues to fill with barley and grain, and not just financially, but the joy builds around Ruth and in Bethlehem. Elizabeth Elliot used to tell a story, it's a fable, about a man who was begging alms in a small village. And he sat along the side of a road one day when the king came to town. And the beggar thought to himself, oh my goodness, surely the king will give to me handsomely. And he holds out his bowl full of a few coins, almsgiving. And the king disappoints him. He holds out his hand over the bowl and says to the beggar, you give me something. And he's confused, and he fumbles around in the bowl, and he pulls out three small grains of rice, and he puts them in the king's hand. Well, later that day, when he's emptying out his bowl to see how many coins he has received, he finds in the bottom of the bowl three grains of gold in the bottom. And he says to himself, oh, that I had given him all. Oh, that I had given him all. Everything that Ruth gives to this new God, he seems to multiply in her hands, in the hands of people around her. There's great blessing, a wounded generosity. Thirdly, Ruth points to a gospel generosity. I say this because I, 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 I learned from this text that the gospel is the motivation for sacrificial generosity that's possible for those, even those who have been wounded. The immigrant for the Israelite is not just a concrete person. The immigrant is also a metaphor. In Exodus 23, verse 9, and I would like it if you'd turn to this passage. It's on page 61 of the Pew Bible. We see the ethical foundation below Israel's charity, particularly to the alien, the immigrant. God is giving his law through Moses to the Israelites here. And God says, you shall not oppress a resident alien. 
That's the immigrant living in your midst. You, shall, you, you know the heart of an alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. God is appealing to their own experience of having been an alien people, of having been an immigrant people. And it's interesting, the first generation would certainly understand that. Subsequent generations would have to take that as an article of faith because they hadn't experienced slavery in Egypt. And yet they would have to rehearse the story of Israel, this great story of God serving as kinsman redeemer who would rescue Israel from slavery in Egypt and set them free. How much we gained when God came and purchased us as a people. And Moses seems to be saying here, don't ever forget that experience. Let that alien heart. See, the point of this is, and I say this is New Testament ethics in a single verse. It's, it, he's not appealing to law. Thou shalt, you'd better do this or you'll get in trouble. It, it's not be generous because you have to. It's be generous because you have been given so much and you want to. When you have that alien heart, you just remember who you are and you want to live out of that experience with other people. We hardly ever meet a generous person who does so out of a sense of obligation. In fact, I think that Obligation kind of is the opposite of generosity. If you pay your credit card bill, nobody ever says, how generous. doesn't matter how big the bill is, right? If you return the favor to someone who's brought a casserole, you bring the casserole, no one says, how generous. You're just, you're just giving what you owe in either case. But if you take some bills and you put them in an envelope and you quietly slide them underneath someone's doorstep, that's generosity. Why do you do it? Because you want to. You want to. Because you know what it's like to have need. Because, boy, before God and Jesus Christ, you have great need. And I think this is true for any of us. You don't have to be a believer in Jesus Christ to be able to make contact with this alien heart. How much have you been given in your life? But for those of us who are believers in Jesus, boy, we know we were slaves to sin. We were dead in our unrighteousness. And God has set us free in Jesus Christ and made us alive in Christ. And so what motivation we have to want to be generous wherever we can. That's an alien's heart. And I want to encourage you to awaken your alien heart uh, this Christmas season. Look at how much you've received from a God who loves you. A sacrificial generosity, a wounded generosity, and a gospel generosity. Why is Ruth worth more than seven sons? I think it's ultimately because it's through her generosity that God is acting. This is God's generosity showing up inside of her life because although God is not explicitly said to be, he's with her all along the way, just as he's with you this week, awake or asleep. He loves you. She's worth more than money. It may be that men are controlling the economy, but she transforms it. She changes the ethos of Bethlehem. We don't have time to look at it, but in chapter 4, you'll see that there's a, a kinsman redeemer who should be the guy, not Boaz, to uh, rescue her and this family. But he, he says, I'll buy the field, but I can't take the family because I don't want to divide my own inheritance. And this is the narrator's way of showing us that even in Bethlehem, the, there is scarcity, there's emptiness. It's ironic because Bethlehem is Hebrew for the house of bread, but there is not, their perception is that there's not enough bread in Bethlehem until Ruth comes. 
and a child is born to her. It may be that money is the thing that sustains culture, but it is generosity that transforms it. If it is God who works through our generosity. And so I just wonder this week if, if you feel that nudge to be generous at some point, rather than suppressing it and saying, oh, I can't afford to be, I, I wonder if maybe you'll ask yourself, or if I'll ask myself, could this be God prompting me and encouraging me to give out of my emptiness so that somebody else might be a little bit more full. You might ask yourself, who are the aliens in our midst today? Well, they, they, they would be immigrants, for sure. They also might be ethnic or cultural uh, minorities in our midst. Uh, they may be members of the LGBTQ community who have experienced uh, habitual rejection and take that deep down inside. And you could be the person that say, you know, I don't quite understand how all of this works. But one thing I know is that God loves you like he loves me. And I want you to experience a sense of God's care. Could be somebody who needs a job and you can help them with their networking. Could be somebody who doesn't yet know the life-changing grace of Jesus Christ. And you have an opportunity to be generous with some time and begin to share the story of Jesus with them. Could be somebody that you're going to have a, a Christmas meal with. Maybe you'll gather with family and there's somebody in your family that's just been harder and harder over the years to connect with. And this may be the, the season where you say, well, I'm going to try again with a generous spirit to see if I can bridge that divide. I met with uh, one of you recently to talk about kindred. And um, this is an African-American brother. And he's just said kindred has just been so life-giving. He said, I watched that 5 o'clock service unfold, and I was just crying. And I said, why? What does it mean to you? He says, well, I feel like God has called me to reconciliation, to be an agent of reconciliation. I said, really? I said, but why? And he said, well, let me tell you this. He pulled out his phone. And he showed me a picture of a tombstone. It was a big white tombstone with large block letters chiseled into it. And it was his last name. And I said, oh, is that your family? Is that your family tomb? And he said, that's the family that owned my family. They were slaves. And he had gone on this business trip to Atlanta, and while he had a little time, took some time to try to find the old plantation, and he found the cemetery with this big stone with his name on it, and it was eerie to see it, even for me. He, he showed me other little stones around the perimeter of the cemetery that were these little brown pocked marks, and he, he said, I think these were where they buried the slaves. So that's your family. I said, what was it like to see that stone? Did you just want to spit on it? Were you just so angry? Was it just brutal to imagine your relatives? And he said, actually, no. In that moment when I stood there, Jesus was with me. And I, I, I got to say, I felt a peace. I, I felt a spirit of forgiveness overwhelming me. And I thought, this is all my family. And I felt called again to be an agent of reconciliation. And I, said, I, I, I listened to this man speak. I thought, oh my gosh, that's an alien's heart. That's somebody who has known they have been rescued from slavery by Jesus and set free. And out of that experience of God's generosity, they want to share with others. No, I'm not surprised to find Ruth is one of the mothers of Jesus. There is a king in her DNA because she has loved in a way that was sacrificial, that was wounded, 
And just like our Savior Jesus Christ, she brings glad tidings of good news. Let's pray together, shall we? King Jesus, we bow before you, thankful, not only for the women through whom your line passes, but for you. And we're thankful that the line of Jesus continues on today, for we are your brothers and sisters, Jesus. You are first, our elder brother, the firstborn son of God, born into our humanity to release us through forgiveness from slavery to sin and death. Oh, we love you, Jesus. We thank you for all that you've given to us. We pray that you will help us to live with open hands and open hearts, that your generosity might flow through us even when we feel like we have so little to offer, yet we have you. We pray that you would multiply uh, our generosity. In Jesus' name, amen.